Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Welcome to a special edition of The Lead. I'm Dana Bash in for Jake Tapper on this Memorial Day. A day for honoring those who gave their lives fighting for the United States. And this year, a day where we are now mourning almost 98,000 deaths, family, friends, and neighbors. Dr. Deborah Burke says the Trump administration is still predicting up to 240,000 Americans dying in the first wave. And the World Health Organization today is saying there may be a second peak as part of the first wave. Plus, as White House senior advisor Kevin Hassett told me yesterday, the devastating economic losses could also be long lasting. As the president uh, is on the ballot in November, you think there could be double digit unemployment still? I think that, yes, unemployment will be something that moves back slower. Many Americans are out and about on this Memorial Day visiting newly reopened businesses and trying to get a taste of summer. And as CNN's Jason Carroll reports, some health experts are alarmed. After weeks of caution and confinement, you wouldn't know a pandemic was going on by looking at the beach today. Looking almost normal in some places, crowded beaches and busy boardwalks seemingly little sign of social distancing and even fewer face masks. In Missouri, shocking images of a packed pool party in the Ozarks causing concern. In other areas, more vigilant, with some communities encouraging people to maintain six feet distance on the beach. In New York City, beaches remain closed. Today, the World Health Organization warns we could see a second peak in the virus. We cannot make assumptions that just because the disease is on the way down now, that it's, on a, it's, on, it's going to keep going down and then we're going to get a number of months to get ready for a second wave. We may get a second peak in this wave. Another WHO official says all countries should remain on high alert since the hallmark of the virus is how fast it can spread from a single event. In the United States, at least 18 states are showing an upward trend in COVID-19 cases, and health experts warn Memorial Day weekend gatherings have the potential to spark a new string of infections in some areas. In Alabama, the Montgomery mayor is again sounding the alarm over ICU beds. This morning, we have six ICU beds out of 100 uh, in this region. And so while that is um, some mild improvement, it is not the type of improvement we'd like to see. We're still at a crisis level in this uh, community. Today, the president attending to Memorial Day remembrances without a mask on in public, even though the White House coronavirus response coordinator has urged all Americans to wear them. A mask does prevent droplets from reaching others. And out of respect for each other, as Americans that care for each other, we need to be wearing masks in public when we cannot social distance. Ohio's Republican governor in agreement, saying wearing a mask should not be political. 
This is not about whether you're liberal or conservative. You wear the mask not to protect yourself so much as to protect others. As deaths relating to COVID-19 near 100,000, the New York Times publishing a stark reminder of the humanity behind the numbers. John Herman Clomax, Jr. of New Jersey, taken by the virus in April, was one of a few African-American corporate bond traders on Wall Street. Just seeing all of those names, you realize the vastness of this pandemic. You realize the immensity of it. It's not just one kind of person. And it really hits home. And Dana, this afternoon, uh, Houston's mayor telling CNN that given all that he has seen in his city, people not following social distancing rules there going forward, he is going to enforce a 25 percent capacity rule on all business there, businesses there until further notice. Dana. Jason Carroll, thank you so much for that report. And I want to go now to Dr. Seema Yasmin, a former CDC disease detective. And doctor, thank you so much for joining me. I want to ask about the WHO warning about a possible second peak coming, even in this first wave. Now, you saw the photos, the video, uh, which we're playing again now, people packing boardwalks. That's a massive pool party in the Ozarks over the weekend. No face coverings that I can see. Listen to what Dr. Deborah Burks of the White House Coronavirus Task Force said about it. A mask does prevent droplets from reaching others. And out of respect for each other, as Americans that care for each other, we need to be wearing masks in public when we cannot social distance. So, Doctor, what is your perspective, what is your view and advice when you see those pictures and photos of people out and about this weekend and probably even as we speak. So America is not out of the woods yet. Every day, people are becoming infected. Every day, Americans are dying by the hundreds of COVID-19. I so wish that this was over, but we're not there yet. And by seeing people packed together on beaches, on boardwalks, even in some restaurants that haven't been strict about restricting the number of people who are going in, we know there's going to be person-to-person transmission. And as much as we have some unknowns about the virus, we do know that it spreads really effectively from one person to another, that those infected microscopic droplets can travel six meters. We know that masks work. And worryingly, we know that about 40% of the spread is occurring from people who don't have symptoms. So we Mm -hmm. have to keep reiterating that you need to do physical distancing even as states start to reopen. I don't even like that term reopening because it symbolizes the floodgates being opened. We need to think about this as a gradual easing, a gradual lifting of restrictions. And you can end up in a situation like some counties in Northern California, where you reopen, you ease ease those restrictions, and very quickly you see a big spike in the number of deaths, and you have to toggle back to closing. And that can actually be more detrimental to the economy when you're opening, shutting down, and reopening again. So we have to remember that people can transmit the virus when they don't have symptoms. We have to remember we are not out of the woods yet. You know, so much of this is human nature. Um, you know, after being shut in effectively for, for more than two months, the weather is nice. You hear it's summer. You feel like it's summer. And people are just kind of done with this. Um, what, from a medical perspective, I know you talk about, the, you and, and Dr. Burks and others talk about the droplets, but should, what should people be keeping in mind as they are trying to break out of their homes and try to, you know, grasp for some normalcy? 
So we did make really big gains by sheltering in place and flattening the curve. We made sure that healthcare systems didn't get overwhelmed. But as a reminder of how quickly that situation can flip, just think about Montgomery, Alabama, where the ICU beds are filled up and people who are severely sick with COVID-19 are having to travel more than an hour to Birmingham to get intensive care treatment. Mm. That can happen really quickly. The way that we minimize that is still by sheltering in place as much as is feasible Sure, states are reopening, but we have to look at the data in our area to make safe and sensible decisions about what you should and shouldn't do. And bearing in mind that people are packing out these public spaces and make sure that if you end up in a situation like that, you're staying as far away from people as possible and you are wearing a mask when social distancing isn't possible for you. So officials where I am in D.C. announced that there was an uptick in cases this weekend and a top doctor at the University of Alabama, you mentioned Alabama, warned of a surge that could really get out of control in that state. Arkansas said that a high school pool party fueled a second wave there. So overall, cases in the U.S. are trending down. But can you make a direct correlation between the spikes and easing the restrictions Uh, over the past several weeks? So this is a situation where it's really important to look at the the national data overall, but also look at what's happening in your state and your county. Because you might get a false sense of security from just seeing that numbers are going down across the country. They might be spiking in your area. I think it's too soon to say exactly that reopening and easing restrictions is what's causing a spike because there can be a two to 14 day lag between Mm. people being exposed to the virus and actually getting sick. But we do know that spikes have occurred about a week after reopening. Maryland, for example, a few days after it reopened, just last Tuesday, it said it had the highest daily case count um, in recent weeks. More than 1,700 people in Maryland were diagnosed with Mm COVID-19 last Tuesday. So it's really important to look at what's happening in your region and be aware that, of course, as we lift restrictions, as people do less and less physical distancing, that curve can peak again. And we still need to do all we can to flatten the curve. I want to ask you about something that former Homeland Security Secretary Michael Chertoff uh, said over the weekend. He said that children, students here in D.C. shouldn't go back to school fully until there is a vaccine. Yesterday, I spoke with New Jersey Governor Phil Murphy, and I asked him about the real difficulty that parents who have no school, no camp, and in many cases, no child care, the difficulty they have in getting back to work. Listen to what he said about that. The big nuts to crack here are going to be daycare, uh, not just camps, but back to school Mm -hmm. in August and September, and and mass transit. Uh, Those are not easy ones uh, to to, uh, get stood up again in a way that remotely looks like it's it's an old normal. Dr. Yasmin, what is your message to parents? This feels like such an impossible situation for parents. And we did see at the beginning of the epidemic that we thought that kids were spared. Now we're seeing in the U.S. that around 2% of all cases are in children. That's reassuring to some extent because they don't seem as hard hit as you might expect with a respiratory bug. But the bad news is that some kids who are becoming sick with COVID-19 are becoming very severely sick. And we're still at that tip of the iceberg of learning exactly why it is that some kids get this full body inflammatory response that can land them in the ICU. 
I think in the meantime, as we learn more about this virus, that we do what we can to keep kids as safe as possible. Maybe in the interest of feasibility and being realistic, kids do have to start returning in some cases to some kind of schooling situations. But in that case, we need to have good evidence-based guidelines to keep kids as apart as possible, mm -hmm. to have disinfectants happening, and also for them to be wearing masks if that's feasible. Dr. Seema Yasmin, thank you so much for those incredible insights and advice, science-based advice uh, that you're giving to everybody on this holiday weekend. Appreciate it. Thank you. And with restrictions still limiting large gatherings, President Trump is attacking the governor of North Carolina, trying to force plans for the GOP convention just months away. Plus, a stunning scene in Brazil, mass graves as coronavirus surges. CNN is on the ground as Brazil becomes the nation with the second most reported cases. Before heading out to honor the nation's fallen heroes, the president blasted out a series of tweets, lashing out after critics, critics attacked him for playing golf on one of the most somber holiday weekends of the year in the middle of a pandemic, a pandemic that has killed more Americans than Vietnam and the Korean Wars combined, as CNN's Caitlin Collins reports. On this Memorial Day, President Trump laid a wreath at Arlington National Cemetery to honor those who have sacrificed their lives and addressed coronavirus as he remembered fallen soldiers in a speech at Fort McHenry in Baltimore. In recent months, our nation and the world have been engaged in a new form of battle against an invisible enemy. Earlier today, President Trump threatened to move the Republican National Convention from North Carolina if the state's governor doesn't commit to allowing a full attendance. The convention has been planned for months and is scheduled for late August, but the coronavirus pandemic has threatened to upend both it and the Democratic National Convention the week before. On Twitter, Trump complained that North Carolina's Democratic governor, Roy Cooper, is still in shutdown mood and unable to guarantee that by August we will be allowed to hold a full convention. Vice President Mike Pence said they may move it to a state that's further along in reopening. We all want to be in Charlotte. We love North Carolina. Uh, but uh, having a sense now is absolutely essential because of the immense preparations that are involved. Last week, Governor Cooper told CNN it wasn't a political decision. This is not political. This is not emotional. This is based on health experts. Trump spent the weekend dedicated to fallen troops on Twitter, where he aired his grievances, posted insults, promoted a baseless murder claim, and amplified disparaging remarks. For his 80 million followers, the president retweeted his supporter John Stahl, who accused House Speaker Nancy Pelosi of drinking booze on the job, mocked former Georgia governor candidate Stacey Abrams by claiming she visited every buffet in the state and referred to Joe Biden as a racist. The president also pushed a debunked theory that MSNBC anchor Joe Scarborough played a role in the death of a staffer in 2001 who hit her head and died. The woman's death was ruled an accident and police never suspected foul play, though the president implied that he's under investigation. As the death toll from coronavirus nears six digits, Trump complained about the media's coverage of him playing golf twice at his club this weekend. Though he often criticized Barack Obama for golfing while in office, Trump said he was only exercising and accused the press of portraying it as a mortal sin. 
Though he once predicted the death toll in the U.S. would never come close to 100,000, Dr. Deborah Burke said the White House is still operating under the idea that it could range from there to 240,000 people. On Sunday, the U.S. added Brazil to the list of countries from which travel is banned because cases there have skyrocketed. Now, Dana, back to what's going to happen with the Republican convention. We are told that by the city of Charlotte that they want to put out some guidance as soon as next month on what to do for these events. They said they've been meeting with the stakeholders of these large events like the RNC, and they're hoping to put out guidance on exactly what everyone can expect in the coming days. Yeah, and Caitlin, I'm told by a source familiar with the president's thinking that this tweet storm about the RNC and threatening to pull out of North Carolina wasn't meant to really say he was going to pull out of North Carolina. It's more about forcing the governor and local officials there to set the rules of the road uh, to, you know, this is something that he does. When he's negotiating, he does the most extreme, uh, takes the most extreme position in order to try to get people to where he wants them. What are you hearing there? Yeah, and we know that the RNC and these state officials have been talking about exactly. this. You know, are they going to have to test all of the delegates? Are there going, I mean, it's thousands of people that come to a convention like this, like temperature checks. All of those things are under, dis- under discussion right now, we're told, but it's just not clear, you know, what agreement they're going to come to. And it's really not clear what the state of the country is going to look like in late August. Though we should note that these conventions bring a lot of money to the states where they are held. So it's hard to see why this governor would not want to hold this convention, given just how much of a financial boost they can be. But as he told Jeff Zeleny last week, he said that safety is their concern at this moment. A lot of bluster going on, not surprisingly, in politics. Caitlin, thank you so much for that report. And many Americans are marking this holiday weekend with trips to the beach. But in some communities, there's a new battle brewing. I'll talk to one official who's trying to stop out-of-towners from visiting. Welcome back to the special edition of The Lead. In our national lead, Americans have flocked to newly reopened beaches, bars, and parks this holiday weekend, even as health experts warn that if they don't social distance, there will be a spike in coronavirus cases within the next two weeks. CNN's Natasha Chan is live from Myrtle Beach, South Carolina. Natasha, what are you seeing there? Are people social distancing or are they not? Yep. Well, Dana, they're doing a pretty good job of that on the beach here because there's a lot of space to do that. And the crowds are a lot lighter than what we saw this weekend. So people can keep their groups, their families separate from other groups. Now, the problem really comes when you talk about indoor spaces, hotels, restaurants, the people flocking to these businesses that so badly need these tourism dollars. They're supposed to keep restaurant capacity here in the state to 50 percent. But the state tells me when they sent out regulators... They found some places had too many people, had to ask some patrons to be shown out the door. Uh, We talked to one person. Now, keep in mind, we're wearing our masks when we're interviewing people in close range. He is the only other person we've met today wearing a mask. And we asked him what it was like wearing a mask when others aren't. I saw one older couple, a very older couple, but other than that, we didn't see any. And that kind of surprised us slightly a little bit. Like, hmm, we are oddballs here at these restaurants. But we did notice that they still were taking proper caution with the six feet distancing. And the city of Myrtle Beach, of course, took extraordinary action with an executive order seeing previous problematic behavior last weekend, giving their police more authority this weekend to do things like potentially close down businesses overnight if they had to. I'm hearing from the city that so far they have not. Dana. 
Okay, Natasha, thank you so much for that report. And in New York, there's a battle over beaches after Mayor Bill de Blasio announced that the city's shorelines were going to stay closed this weekend. And now neighboring beach towns in Long Island are putting in place a residents-only policy, hoping to stop the exodus of city dwellers. Joining me now is Nassau County Executive Laura Karen. And um, Laura, let me ask about what you're doing there, because Nassau uh, is the westernmost part of Long Island. So some of the closest beaches to New York City. You signed legislation. Right. You signed legislation to restrict beach access to locals only. A, why'd you do that? And B, how are you enforcing it? So number one, we share a 15-mile border with New York City. We're right on the Queens border. We're the first county into Long Island. And I've been speaking with, Gov- uh, with Mayor de Blasio about his rationale for keeping his beaches closed for now. And I completely understand it. There are density issues there. People take public transportation. And since the local jurisdiction has to enforce it, I understand his decision. So since we're capped at 50 percent here uh, all over the state, I want to make sure that our residents who pay the taxes actually get the chance to enjoy the beach since we are limited. Now, as soon as the governor deems it safe and enforceable, excuse me, the mayor deems it safe and enforceable to open up his New York City beaches, then our law sunsets. How worried are you about that policy having a big impact on businesses in your county? I mean, Nassau is typically kind of a you have a lifeline in New York and other areas around, uh, especially in the summer months for the economy. Absolutely. We had a wonderful tourism season last season, one of our best. And now we're seeing it really suffering. Hotels, restaurants, all those wonderful beachside places uh, are really struggling. Our downtowns are struggling. I'm very happy that we're going to be getting into phase one of our reopening. We're on track to get started on that on Wednesday if we continue to meet our metrics and meet our numbers. But Uh, I am very concerned about our economy. I'm very focused on helping people get back to work as quickly as they possibly can. And I think we've proven uh, in Nassau County, our residents and our businesses have been fantastic, that we can do this while mitigating risk. Our people get about face coverings. They understand about social distancing and, and they're definitely ready to get back to work. Yesterday, your governor, Andrew Cuomo, announced that Long Island is on track to reopen this Wednesday. Now, we've seen the number of new cases in your state reach a plateau over the last two weeks. If there is a resurgence, are you prepared to close the county again? So we're going to get into phase one. There's going to be four phases, and these are deemed those with the least amount of risk. For instance, construction. Construction is happening on essential projects, essential projects right now very safely, Curbside retail is another and manufacturing is another. If we, however, do see the numbers start to rise again, then we can expand that phase two for longer until we really get a handle on it. Okay, Nassau County Executive Laura Curran, thank you so much. And I hope you have a nice and as restful of a Memorial Day weekend as you can under these circumstances. Thank you very much. Thank you. And up next... A mayor fighting a major coronavirus outbreak Uh, among her residents as she fights her own personal battle. Stay with us. 
In our national lead, Texas is moving swiftly to reopen all parts of life and the economy. But in the state's panhandle, things are getting worse, not better. It's a region that plays a significant role in the nation's food supply, with a quarter of America's beef coming from that region. I talked to the mayor of Amarillo, Texas, Ginger Nelson, about how she's keeping her city safe and fighting the virus while she is personally fighting a different disease, cancer. We're a hot spot. We've been hit hard. In Amarillo, Texas, COVID-19 numbers spiked in recent weeks. Level red, the highest alert level. Mayor Ginger Nelson says the city's hottest spot is a Tyson meat plant. What about the meat packing plant caused the surge? We had to do shelter in place so that we could educate ourselves. And in the time that it took us to learn that, it, it was already here in our communities, and it was already uh, working its way in through the employees of these meatpacking plants. We just have a unique situation here with our meatpacking plants. They're critical to the nation's food supply, and they can't close. How hard is it to balance what you're saying, which is you don't think that they can close because of the food supply of the country, and yet you're talking about the health and welfare of your constituents and residents. If you talk to people that work in the plant, they are conflicted by the same thing. They know um, how important their jobs are, and they know how important their industry is to both the nation's food supply and our local economy. But then again, they weigh that with their own personal anxieties about getting sick. Mayor Nelson isn't just fighting COVID-19 for her city. She's also fighting cancer, diagnosed right before the pandemic hit. She just finished her first round of radiation. You're in the middle of radiation while fighting a pandemic for your citizens. Yes, and I I don't do treatment here in my city because they, um, this type of cancer uh, is rare. And so I go to Houston to get treatment. So I'm immuno compromised, um, which is unexpected. No one expects to be on a cancer journey. And um, I'm in my 40s, so I'm not in the normal COVID high risk um, age range. But it has given me a very empathetic perspective to someone who is. And they picked this book, 365 Penguins. A big priority is connecting her constituents with resources to help their mental health. I think a lot of it's just been conversation and it's been trying to tell people, check your mental health. It's okay to talk about your mental health Um, and and connecting them to resources that we already have here in our city that they might not have previously needed or been aware of or have been interested in using. Despite being a hotspot, businesses are reopening in Amarillo, Texas. What's it like to have to make a decision to, you know, reopen, which you know will help the economy and society as a whole, but also people could get sick? Well, it's not a light burden. And I think as a leader, it's never been that simple for me. Um, It's a multifaceted issue. um, As I've asked people to stay home, I've known I was asking businesses to close their doors, and that meant they weren't going to be able to make mortgage payments. You can do this with a mask on. Nelson is aggressively using social media to push safety. We've used the tagline, I'll wear one for you if you'll wear one for me, because truly it is a new form of citizenship that you would consider others and the needs of others above your own comfort. I lay awake at night and I worry. I worry about the kids. 
I worry about the moms. I worry about the dads. I worry about the small business owners. I worry about our city finances. Um, and I worry about our, our families getting sick or even not having enough to eat. So, sorry. Sorry to get all teary, <laughs> but it's real. We wish Mayor Nelson and her uh, residents well. And we want to give you this statement provided to us by Tyson saying, our top priority is the health and safety of our team members, their families, and our communities. We take this responsibility very seriously and are committed to working with our communities to help minimize the spread of the virus. And coming up, there have been more than 1,000 burials in this cemetery since the pandemic began. We're going to go live to Brazil next. Welcome back to this special edition of The Lead. And in our world lead, Japan is lifting its national state of emergency today, a week earlier than originally planned. But Japan's prime minister says a coronavirus vaccine is significant in order to host the delayed Tokyo Olympics. And in India, after a two-month shutdown, airports are reopening for domestic flights. But coronavirus cases are still surging in that country. And British Prime Minister Boris Johnson says he regrets the pain his top aide, Dominic Cummings, caused when he bucked the country's lockdown restriction and traveled to be with his family despite having the virus. But he is supporting his aide's decision not to resign. And in the original epicenter of the virus, Wuhan, China, the director of the Wuhan Virology Institute says not only did the virus not escape some experiment from his facility, but China didn't even know about the virus before December, despite reports saying otherwise. The U.S. is now blocking anyone from coming in who has been in Brazil in the past 14 days after that country became the second most infected country in the world with more than 360,000 cases. I want to bring in CNN's Nick Payton Walsh to talk about this. And, and Nick is in Manus, Brazil, which has been devastated by the virus. Nick, give us an idea of just how serious the conditions are there. Well, it's been an extraordinary past month for this city of Manaus. Uh, it is pretty much isolated in the middle of the Amazon forest, city of two million. But we were at one of their cemeteries today where 1,500 graves have been dug since the beginning of this pandemic. Just to let you know why we're standing in front of a fence here, behind us is the airport into which coronavirus cases from all over the region are flown often on single private jets, sort of missions of mercy, if you like, to bring the patients of this disease that spread across this vast territory of the Amazon into the main city here where they can get medical treatment if it's not too late. But for those who it is unfortunately being too late, we saw the graveyard there. And I should point out one of the startling things it revealed to us was it was sort of split in two. One part of it was about a fifth of the size of the rest of it. And it was the cases there that were positive tested for coronavirus. The rest, the four fifths, was about people who had a suspected case of coronavirus. And so startlingly, it's quite clear from that that the testing here has been full far short. And it's exceptionally hard to know quite how many people in Brazil have actually died of the disease and possibly how many indeed uh, have tested positive for it. So uh, here in Manaus, we're sort of seeing exactly what happens in a city that's isolated like this, into which the infection 
is introduced, where people unfortunately have been listening a lot to the Brazilian President Jair Bolsonaro and his message that this disease isn't that serious. It's, quote, a little flu. He's been uh, widely panned uh, by the local mayor here, who accepts that many people in this area have been, in fact, listening to their president rather than the mayor of the city who's advising them to try and stay indoors. He had some very stark words uh, to respond to Mr Bolsonaro, uh, essentially saying he was stupid and that he should shut up, stay at home and resign because he said he was responsible for so many deaths here because of the message he'd been giving out. Donna. And Nick, that President Bolsonaro, as you mentioned, he has been out in the crowds. He has been touching. He has been doing everything that you're not supposed to do, not to mention downplaying the virus, as you mentioned. Um, what are you hearing from the people of Brazil? And, and what kind of, uh, of problem is he sort of helping to cause and, and, and create and extend, given the way that he is acting or maybe I should say not reacting? Well, I mean, he's acting. You saw the video of him with a rally on Sunday uh, of his supporters, very commonly done in the governmental capital of Brasilia. He greets his supporters, but he flew over them in a helicopter, it seemed, got off the helicopter in a mask, then took it off to go near the crowds. That in itself is a dangerous message. It's saying to people in places like Manaus, where masks are mandatory, the main cities of Sao Paulo and Rio, that you don't really need to wear a mask, but you obviously do. And that is contributing to this extraordinary rise in numbers, which I say is not the entire picture here in Brazil. Dana? Nick Peyton Walsh in Manaus, Brazil. Thank you so much for that report. Appreciate it. And coronavirus has infected thousands of U.S. service members. It's not the first time, though, that the military has had to battle disease. We'll explain next. Coronavirus in the backdrop of tributes like this on Memorial Day at Arlington National Cemetery. Social distancing for those who looked on at the president's salute at the tomb of the unknown soldier. And in Delaware, former Vice President Joe Biden and his wife wore masks at Veterans Memorial Park in Newcastle, Delaware. It's the first time Biden has left his home since mid-March. I want to bring in CNN presidential historian Douglas Brickley to talk about uh, this and more. And I'm Really looking forward to talking to you because you have so much insight into the history of the military and, and dealing with, with disease. Um, you know, we know that the military reports uh, another 5,900 cases among its ranks, but it's not the first time disease has plagued the U.S. military in American history. Hardly, right? Hardly. Um, and, you know, I feel our hearts go out for anybody suffering from COVID-19 in the armed forces. And they're doing heroic work around the globe for us right now. But in U.S. history, I mean, let's just start with the American Revolution. I mean, George Washington was so worried about yellow fever mm. that his one thing that saved it, we wouldn't be a country today if Washington didn't decide to inoculate troops for smallpox. Mm. It was seen as a radical procedure that had been perfected in Great Britain, and, and Washington went with it, and it saved thousands of lives. Nevertheless, we have to keep in mind in the first 145 years of U.S. history, in any battle, we talk about Revolutionary War, War of 1812, Mexican-American War, all the way up to World War I, we had many more deaths in the military from disease than we did battle. And in fact, that was always the enemy. In World War I, when the Spanish flu epidemic hit, 
I mean, 30,000 soldiers in one swoop never made it to France. They were dying of influenza on the way there. Mm. The Spanish-American mm. War, seven dead um, uh, by disease from every one with a, a battle wound. So part of the history of America on Memorial Day is connecting the idea of disease and our past wars and our veterans and recognize that the enemy has always been, um, you know, infectious diseases like smallpox or tuberculosis, on and on. That is such a fascinating stat that in many of these wars, and you're saying most of the wars uh, that America has fought, the death has not been from the enemy uh, on the other side of the battlefield. It's been from pandemics. I know one of the stats that you mentioned was World War II was the first time that that flipped, that death on the battlefield actually exceeded death from disease. And there's a hopeful note there, because after World War I and the Spanish flu epidemic that devastated our armed forces, our doughboys, we started working really hard on antibiotics, and it is a game changer. So right at the cusp, at the beginning of World War II, the United States was leading the charge globally on antibiotics. And we inoculated our soldiers that went into the European theater and the Japanese uh, um, you know, island hopping campaign in the Pacific they were they got inoculated for smallpox, tetanus, you know, typhoid fever, yellow fever, and that that's how we were able to win. It's not just industrial mobilization or battlefield victories. We won the um, a battle against infectious diseases. Yeah, and you mentioned what George Washington did, which seemed radical back during the Revolutionary War, but more broadly. I know you know, looking at history, that there would be no country, no United States, if not for the role of medicine specifically in the military. And look, we, we have a, the, the memorial for that is Walter Reed Hospital mm-hmm. in Washington, D.C. Dr. Reed was worried about the deaths in the Spanish-American War, and now we try to take care of our veterans. But on this Memorial Day, it's very sad. Veterans from the Korean War and Vietnam, World War II, and more recent wars, some are dying of COVID-19, and here they fought the enemy abroad only to die here at home from this invisible enemy uh, that we're all combating right now. And and real quick, uh, the notion of Memorial Day was always intended not just to remember people who died on the battlefield um, from uh, bullets or or other artillery, but from actual disease. Yes. And, you know, but you don't give a silver star, bronze star, purple heart to somebody who died of infectious diseases. Mm -hmm. So maybe this Memorial Mm -hmm. Day and every Memorial Day, we should think more about soldiers, uh, sailors who have died in war um, by disease, not just um, battlefield injuries. So well said. I could talk to you for hours. Maybe I'll call you after the show. <laughs> Professor okay. Brinkley, yeah. thank you so much for joining us uh, to give your important insight on the history uh, of the military on this Memorial Day. And before we go, we would like to salute lives of two military veterans who died of coronavirus. Philip Kahn died at 100 years old. He lost a twin brother shortly after birth during the Spanish flu pandemic in 1919. Philip Kahn was a sergeant in the U.S. Army Air Force. His family says Kahn kept warplanes fueled during World War II. He received the Bronze Battle Star for his service. We also want to salute 86-year-old Gerard Bartuch. He served in World War II, and his grandson says Bartuch loved all things Disney. He was someone who comforted everyone with his laugh. He lived in Melrose Park, Illinois, and the Bartuch and Khan families. To you all, may your loved ones rest in peace, and may their memories be a blessing. 
Our coverage continues on CNN right now. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number smart beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 smart bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.